All right, so good to see y'all this evening. Those who are watching on Facebook, back at Bible study after a two-week uh, absence. <laughs> so it's good to be back. Um, we're continuing in the book of Judges. Tonight we're in the third chapter. Let's do it our Bible studies. We go chapter by chapter. And in those chapters, we go section by section, uh, basically doing an expository Bible study uh, through the books of the Bible. Uh, we've done Genesis all the way down to now the book of Judges. So we thank the Lord for that. And so tonight we're going to be in the third chapter, continuing our study of uh, Israel's apostasy and what the Lord shows us through his word and uh, warnings for us concerning uh, spiritual drift and how it can affect our walk with Christ and also encouragements to always look to Christ. Uh, as I said, when we began this study, the uh, not activities, but the, uh, the book of Judges spans, I think, about 350 years of Israel's uh, history. It takes uh, place over, I think it's about 350 year uh, period, 350, 360 year period. And you see in this chapter, you're going to see um, a lot of years take place when Israel had been given rest. So it's about 350 years that the events in this book take place. And so in chapter three here, we're going to see where God gave Israel rest for so many years. Now, as we get into this study, one thing that uh, I want to point out is, and I, I think I said this the last time we, we met, <clears throat> excuse me, the last time we met together, that you're going to see a pattern emerge in this book, especially this part of the book going from chapter three all the way down. Uh, to chapter 12, 13, you're going to see a very familiar pattern. It's going to be a cycle of apostasy and then God's judgment and then repentance and then deliverance. And you're going to see this pattern over and over again. We're going to see it twice in this chapter. So apostasy, rem remember, apostasy is departing from the faith. It's a departure from, in Israel's case, is the it's a departure from serving Yahweh uh, to serving the foreign gods. You know, uh, going into idolatry, and not just idolatrous worship, but idolatrous practices. You know, intermarrying with pagans and all these different things. All of that uh, is apostasy. So when you think about, I, I, I talk about where apostasy and like apostate church denominations. Uh, denominations that have departed from biblical orthodoxy and have de uh, departed into paganism and, uh, you know, not worshiping Christ and not, um, you know, using the Bible as final authority uh, and, and, and all those things. So that's what it means to apostatize. You depart from the faith in New Testament language. In Old Testament language, apostatizing was departing from worship of God and obeying his commandments and instead worshiping uh, the pagans, worshiping, uh, being idolaters. So we're going to see a pattern again. 
of apostasy, judgment, repentance, and deliverance throughout this whole book. Um, so in this, we're going to see God's mercy, God's forgiveness when we turn to him. So that's uh, a key aspect of what we're going to see, not just in this chapter, but uh, in the rest. And it's going to happen under every judge. Now, this is the chapter where we begin to see the ruling of judges over Israel. They didn't have a king at the time. Remember, in the wilderness, they had Joshua. I'm sorry, in the wilderness, they had Moses and Aaron. And in the promised land, they had Joshua. So now that Joshua's off the scene, Israel doesn't have a leader. So God is going to appoint judges to them. And throughout the book, that's why it's called Judges. And Israel had 13 judges, the last one being Samson. And that's going to be uh, when we get to that in Judges chapters 13 through 16. He was the last judge of Israel. So we're going to have 13 judges. In this chapter, we're going to see the first uh, three, I think, uh, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Okay, we're going to see these three judges introduced in this chapter. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, give us wisdom tonight as we study your word. Illuminate your truths to us. Lord, fill me with your spirit to teach well this text. And Lord, I pray that you reach all of our hearts with your word, with the message tonight, with the study tonight, uh, to not depart from your word, to not turn to the right hand or to the left. Because apostasy happens slow until it happens suddenly. Lord, keep us from apostasy. Keep us from departing from the faith. Help us, Lord, to, to practice the ordinary means of grace that you give us to grow. Uh, so that we may grow closer to you and not depart from you. So, Lord, bless our time in your word tonight. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to look at the first section, which is verses one through six. It says, now these are the nations which the Lord left. Okay, so the Lord left some nations. And remember, again, just as a reminder, let me stop here. Israel was supposed to conquer all these pagans. Remember that when they got possession of their lands, their 12 allotments, they were supposed to get rid of all of those Canaanites, but we saw toward the end of the book of uh, Joshua, they didn't do that. And we saw in the first two chapters of this book that they failed to do that. And remember, God said they were going to be a thorn in their side. So now we're going to start seeing this take place. So these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generation of the children of Israel might be taught to know war at least those who had not formerly known it namely the five lords of the Philistines all the Canaanites the Sidonians and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath and they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they will obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, 
the Hivites and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. So the pagan nations remained in the territory of Israel. So God had left these Canaanite nations behind because Israel was not faithful in driving them out. Remember, that's what Israel was supposed to do, drive all of them out. Not only drive them out, but kill all, not kill, but destroy all of their idols, all of their high places. They were supposed to drive them out. So it was God's will, but it was also a combination of their choice. Because of their choice to not drive them out, it was God's will for those nations to stay among them. So what was God doing? He was testing Israel. We talked about testing this past Sunday, as a matter of fact, about how God tests us. And that, that, that testing is not meant to destroy us, but to grow us. So it was within the power of God to eliminate these, these nations without any help from Israel. But God had a reason for allowing them to be there. And this was to test. Test means to prove. Is where proving Israel, proving their the authenticity of their faith. I talked about this this past Sunday about God tests us to prove our faith. Is our faith genuine? Or is our faith disingenuous? Is our faith real? Because remember, this is how apostasy happens. We talked about this Sunday. Person is tested by God. God doesn't tempt, God tests. James 1, God doesn't tempt anyone. But God does test us. God tests us with different trials, right? And tribulations. If a person's faith is real, they're not going to abandon God because life gets hard. Or because they're enduring these tests. They're going to press through them. They're going to pray through them. They're going to read and study the word. They're going to keep fellowshipping with the saints. They're going to press through with, with the Spirit's help. As, because they know that the grace of God is with them as they endure these tests. That, that is what happens. It's a proving ground. Do you know that cars, when manufacturers... Uh, build cars they they test the models they have proof they're called proving grounds most of the major automobile automobile manufacturers have proving grounds where they go out and they test these vehicles they don't test every single one that comes off the line but they they test like one of their models they put them out on the proving ground like a three mile track it has a wet part it has a dry part it has parts that that represent all types of road conditions and they, they're called proving grounds. They're proving, they're testing the vehicle to see is it, is it worthy of being manufactured. That's called a, a testing ground, a proving ground. And that's what God does when he tests us. He is proving us. He's proving Israel. These nations would remain because God wanted to prove the faithfulness of Israel to himself. To improve their reliance on him. That's why he did that. Because we have to remember this about God. And the nature and the character of God. God loves us so much that he does test us. Because he's testing the genuineness of our faith. And our allegiance to him. 
God doesn't just instantly change every area of our lives so that our relationship with him can be proved and improved. Okay? He tests us so that we can live a life of true partnership with him. A life of true worship toward him. So that the generations of the children of Israel might know him as the writer continues to say that they might know war. So another reason why God allowed the Canaanites to remain with Israel so that they could be warriors. So they could learn how to fight and defend. And the presence of these dangerous nations, okay? <laughs> these nations were very dangerous because future generations were going to go at war uh, against them. You can see that in the book of uh, First Samuel. Israel still had to go to war with the Amalekites. The Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant and Israel had to go to war against Philistines to, to get the Ark back because it had been taken out of Israel. David had to go to war uh, when he was uh, king. Well, not when he was anointed king, but when he was chosen to be king, he led Israel against the Philistines. That's when he defeated Goliath. So this testing right here was preparing the future generations uh, for war. And this is the nature of sin. Also, Israel's battle with all these different pagan nations is a picture of our battle and our struggle against sin because these were sinful, these were sinful nations. Israel was not to bow down to them. They were to struggle against these nations and fight against them. And that is our fight against sin. Uh, talk about this all the time. A true Christian struggles against sin. A true Christian does not live in sin. A true Christian does not surrender to sin's power. We struggle against it. Israel is supposed to struggle against these nations, not just give in to them, but that's what they did. But for the Christian, we struggle against sin. No one likes to struggle against sin. I don't like to struggle against sin. But the battle is good for us. Always remember, the symbol of Christianity is a cross. The symbol of Christianity is is not a road full of rose petals. That cross represents struggle. That cross represents suffering. That cross represents agony and rejection and ridicule and scorn and sacrifice and persecution. As Christians, guess what? We're going to have to endure all those things as we go and march on our way to glory. Don't you know how sweet heaven is going to be for us? So John MacArthur said, uh, I, I quote this a lot. John MacArthur said, the greatest thing about heaven is the absence of sin. It's going to be the presence of Christ also. But outside of that, the absence of sin, sin will not be in heaven. No sin. We won't have sinful thoughts. It's no type of sin. So the struggle that we have against sin now, when we go take our rest with the Lord, it's going to be even sweeter because we don't have to deal with sin anymore. Thank the Lord. But that struggle is real. 
Israel, they have to struggle also. So next it says, verse 3 and 4, the, the five lords of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, who dwell in Lebanon, so forth and so on. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So God named each of these pagan peoples that stubbornly stayed in the land. This was basically pagan territory. And he did this that he might test Israel. So the reason that God didn't just eliminate these nations is stated once again. It was to prove Israel's commitment to God and his word. Israel, are you true? Or are you not? If they were obedient to the word of God, the other nations would not even hinder them. And they would grow strong enough to drive them out completely. So neither of these nations are with them. Among them. If they are obedient to God, then guess what? They'll be able to defeat those nations. Same thing with us in our Christian life. We obey God. God saves us. We obey him. We keep his commandments. We're able with the Lord's help. To win those small battles. Against sin. We're able to do that. As God tests us. He grows us. Our roots go deeper. Our faith gets stronger. As we endure those test I'm fairly young 52 years old uh, by God's grace I've been a Christian since I was age 19 I'm not by any means a perfect example of anything <laughs> I've endured many tests in my life as a Christian many as a husband as a father as a man as a employee, as a preacher, as an elder, as an assistant pastor, as a pastor, all aspects of life. And I'm not, you know, as long as we're in this flesh, we're going to be tested. But those tests that God helped me to endure have grown me in my faith and in my convictions that I have. I always say be convicted where you're convicted. Don't compromise your convictions. Y'all hear me talk about that all the time. Why? Because I've been through those tests and I know it is not worth compromising. You can be tested in friendships. Your faithfulness to God among your friend group or among your family members. You can be tested that way. Are you going to follow the crowd to go along to get along bunch? Or are you going to stand firm on your Christian convictions that can be a test right there God can test you on your job are you going to sit up and gossip and complain like everybody else or are you going to be standing over by yourself doing break because you don't want to associate with that and people are going to look at you what's wrong with you you too good to be around us yes I don't want to sin against my God that can be a form of testing So it can come in all different types of ways. It could be a testing in. I was telling Harvey. Uh, I appreciate God's work in him. Him coming to church although he's not feeling well. Some people won't come to church and they sneeze. 
I got a cold. I can't come to church. They'll show up at work. So when you're tested, God is testing your commitment to him. I'm not saying, okay, you come to church if you, if you, you know, nose running and all, you know, you know, we, 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 you know, like I said, we're not going to one ditch or the other, but you know what I'm generally saying? Some people, if they just sneeze, oh, I'm sick, I can't go to church, but they'll show up at work on Monday, sneezing still, right? But can't come to church for an hour and a half, two hours at the most, but you got an eight-hour job, a six-hour job, ten-hour job. Those testings are there to test our faith and our commitment to God. And that's what God is doing here with Israel. Testing whether they would obey him. So now, what did Israel do? God gives them their first judge. Verse 5. We saw who they dwelt with. Look at verse 6. Look at what happens. They dwelt among all these nations and they took their wives, I'm sorry, their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served other gods. Hmm. The sin of, this is, this is a sin in covenant Israel it is. It's a sin to intermarry with the pagans. It was a great sin for them to do that. But this was the first step into apostasy. They sinned by intermarriage. They were not supposed to intermarry with the pagans. Why? They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asher. They served their gods. That's in verse 7. But back at verse 6, they gave their daughters, they served their Gods. The pagan. Let me tell you something about pagan. Let me tell you some of unbelievers and uh, evil influences. I've I, I've talked about this before. This is the way it generally happens. If you're around, you know, Paul says in First Corinthians 15, evil communication corrupts good people. If you, as a Christian, especially if you're not really strong in your faith. If you hang around unbelievers long enough, you're going to end up more like them than they are like you. People underestimate the influence of evil. I don't think evil is real. If you as a Christian associate yourself, it's not that you shouldn't have friends that are unbelievers, because all of us do, family members. Not that you just isolate yourself, go and live out in the woods somewhere off the grid. No. What it means is your fellowship with them can lead you away from Christ to worshiping their gods. They will influence you more than you influence them for Christ. That's how strong and how powerful evil is is an evil influence if you're not strong in your faith guess what it's going to happen I've seen it happen 
a lot in my 31, 32 years as a believer. I saw it happen way back when I was in college. Because this is the thing. We came out of evil. God brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But we still know how darkness looks. Friends, darkness is real. Paganism is real. I don't dabble with anything that looks pagan to me. I just know. I don't hang out with people who are unbelievers. I have unbelieving friends and family and stuff like that. But I'm not going to hang out with them. You know, like in a way where you're doing business with them and all those type of things. That's what I mean. Being in fellowship and partnership with them. No. Why? Because what about what our conversation is going to be about? Our conversation is going to be different. Our lifestyle is going to be different. The things that we think about. I know some people, they think so dark. I mean, everything, and, and, you know, I was telling a young lady earlier today, I listen to people. I observe. I listen to people's conversation. I listen to the, the things they say. Some people are just so dark. They have a dark, they have dark words because they have a dark mind. They have a dark mind because they have a dark heart. Their heart is not uh, captured by Christ. So guess what? Everything they say is going to be dark. They take pleasure in darkness, the things of darkness. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 to not even speak of what they do in secret. We're to walk circumspectly, wisely, as Paul said in Ephesians 5, redeeming the time for the days of evil. Israel, they started off by intermarrying, which was not wise, and they began to serve their gods. What do you think was going to happen? God told that to uh, uh, King, King uh, Solomon in 1 Kings, the 11th chapter, where it chronicles he has 700 wives and 300 concubines, but God told him, he warned him back in, I think, the ninth chapter to not marry these foreign women because they're going to take his heart away from the Lord. Guess what? Two chapters later, we see where he married all these foreign wives, and the scripture says that these women took his heart away from the Lord. He began to serve their gods. This was King Solomon, the wisest man in all of scripture. Who wrote most of the book of Proverbs. The man who God told him. Pray ask me for anything you want. And Solomon prayed for wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. But he still married these foreign women. And these women took him away from the Lord. We can't play with the evil people. We can't tamper with it. We can't, we can't have one foot. We can't, as my old folks used to say, you can't straddle the fence. You're either with Christ. Christ said, he who is not with me is against me. And he, he who is against me scatters abroad. Either you're with Christ or you're with the world and paganism. You can't be both. What does the Bible say? A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. 
in the book of James? Can't serve God and mammon. The distinctions. You can't do both. The Bible always presents that. The Bible always presents a choice. Life, death. Good, evil. Blessing, cursing. God, mammon. Christ, everything else. What did Joshua tell Israel? Uh, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. Elijah on Mount Carmel to Israel. Choose the day you're going to serve. How long are you going to hop between two opinions? If you're going to serve the God of Israel, serve. You're going to serve the Baals, serve the Baals. But you have to choose. You can't, you can't serve all these false. You can't serve Baal and serve God at the same time. That's what Elijah said on, on, on Mount Carmel to Israel against the 400 prophets of Baal. How long, he was telling Israel, how long are you going to hop between two opinions? You can't serve both. You can't serve the false gods and serve uh, Jehovah God. You can't do both. You cannot do both, people. We can never, it would never, ever work. It's going to lead to confusion. But this is what Israel did. They gave their daughters to their sons. And they gave their sons to their wives. So look what happens in verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil. Think about this. This is called evil in God's eyes. The intermarrying is called what? Evil. Think about the correlation there. They did evil by intermarrying, and they did evil by serving their gods. Idolatry is evil. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The Asherah is the name uh, of the symbol for the Canaanite goddess. That's what Asherah is. Jesus said in Mark the 10th chapter, he talked about following him would require that we give up things that we love the most. An ungodly romance falls into the same category. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6 to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Because he said, what fellowship have righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? If a Christian marries an unbeliever, their marriage is going to have trouble from the jump. It's going to always be conflict. The wife's going to want to church, go to church and the husband's not going to want to go. The wife's going to want to take the children to work and the husband don't care. The wife's going to be dragging her children to church by herself, coming home to an unsupportive husband. That's going to cause strife in the marriage. Okay, how, how they put it on Facebook. There is disorder in that home. Why? Because they're not equally yoked together. It always happens that way. Jesus said, I say to you that there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. Who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He said that in the book of 
Mark verses Mark chapter 10 verses 29 through 30. Even Jesus himself tells us that following him requires that we give up things we love the most. Not that you hate them, but you love Christ more. Israel wasn't willing to do that. They forgot their God and they served the Baals and the Asherahs, the Canaanite goddess. <laughs> so verse 8. The anger of the Lord was I, I, in the King James, New King James, it says it was hot. It says the anger of the Lord was hot. It kindled like a burning fire against Israel. And rightfully so. And he sold them into the hand of the of Kashan Rishathium, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Kashan Rishathium eight years. So guess what? They went into bondage. God gave Israel what they wanted. They didn't want to serve God. So guess what? He allowed them to be in bondage to a pagan king. Israel reaped what they sowed. Think about this. Israel wanted to worship those false gods because they did. So guess what? God gave them what they wanted. He put them into bondage. What, 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 what principle can we get from that? Idolatry is bondage. Idolatry is bondage. Idolatry is slavery. You are a slave to what you idolize. I was talking to a young lady today. One of our customers on the phone. Oh, man. She was raving about Beyonce. You got Beyonce worshipers. They call them the beehive. You got Taylor Swift worshipers. They're called Swifties. The Grateful Dead worshipers are called deadheads. Jimmy Buffett, who recently died a couple months ago, his worshipers are called parrotheads. All of these people idolize and they're actually in bondage. Idolatry brings bondage. False worship, pagan worship brings bondage. God gave Israel what they wanted. So one theologian said this name Cushion Rishathaim actually means cushion of double wickedness. That was his, that's what his name meant. So he was a doubly wicked man. So they were in bondage for how many years? Eight years. So many years of bondage before they cried out to the Lord. So verse 9. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So he was Caleb's what? Uh, first cousin, oh, nephew. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war. So they went out to war. Remember, God prepared them for war when he tested them. Try to work on through the rest of this. And the Lord delivered Cushan 
Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over him. So the land had rest how many years? Forty years. So they were in bondage for eight years. And then after they defeated the king of Mesopotamia, they had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So it took Israel eight years to cry out to the Lord. You know, that's a, a great illustration of people who are in spiritual bondage or people who are in bondage. It can take them a long time before they finally cry out to the Lord. Israel didn't cry out in during those eight years. After eight years, they finally cried out to the Lord. That shows you how much in bondage a person can be. It could take many years of bondage and tragedy and calamity before people look away from self and look unto God. We talk about people who, oh, they just need to hit rock bottom. You know, you know, we talk like that about people that we know, that we love, that are living in rebellion against God. Lord, they, they just need to hit rock bottom. No, we need to pray that they just cry out to the Lord. I always said a person never hits rock bottom. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as rock bottom. That's a psychological uh, term. When people are in bondage, they need to cry out to God. And guess what God will do? He will hear what he do with Israel. He raised up a deliverer. Raised up a deliverer. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he delivered them. When in bondage, cry out to the Lord. All right. Moving on. Continuing. So we're at the first judge, Othniel. I got some good news for you. <laughs> Look at verse 12. So they had rest for how many years? 40. 40 years. Look at verse 12. Remember I told you about the cycle? Apostasy, punishment, repentance, restoration. Them crying out to God was the repentance part and then the rest was restoration so you had the apostasy where they intermarried and they worshipped other gods and then you had the punishment where God sent them into bondage under the king of Mesopotamia and then you had the repentance after eight years and then God restored them and gave them rest because they defeated the enemy and then he gave them rest for 40 years we're about, guess what we're about to repeat this cycle again you know how to say wash rinse repeat verse 12 children of Israel again as that word, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon. So you got the Ammonites and, and, and of Amalek, the Amalekites, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. So they had to serve Mesopotamian king for eight years. And now... Is even longer punishment, longer slavery. <laughs> so now they're in bondage for 18 years, as if that eight years didn't get their attention. So you have Moab, 
and you had Ammon, and then you had the Amalekites. So you had these three. He brought deliverance. And what did Israel do? They drifted away from their dependence and, uh, and obedience toward God. Lord, sometimes this can happen in our Christian life. God delivers us from something great. And we forget. Lord, help us not be like that. So Israel sinned again, brought them into bondage. They suffered eight years again under the other one. Now they had to do another 18 years of bondage. People, remember this about sin, please. We have to remind ourselves, even after I remind myself. Sin always brings bondage. Sin will always bring bondage. Don't believe the lie that sin is fun. It comes to us deceptively. Think the fish never contemplates the bondage of the hook when it goes after the bait. The Puritan uh, Thomas Watson, he has a great book that I have that I read uh, from sometimes uh, called Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices. Satan's Devices. And one of the devices he says Satan uses is Satan often presents the bait and hides the hook. Isn't that how fish are caught? That's why you have bait, right? The fish go for the bait, but they don't see the hook until they bite the bait. That's the way sin is. That's the way the devil works. He will present you the bait and hide that hook. Satan snares us by masking the bait. He makes it attractive. And he hides the hook. That's how deceptive sin is. And so this is what happened with Israel. They were lured again into sin. So what does God do in his mercy? Verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried out. The Lord God raised up a deliverer for them. Ahud the son of Gera the Benjamite. A left handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute. To Eglon king of Moab. And when he had finished presenting the tribute. He sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone image uh, that was at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Because what did, what did he do? He hid a dagger. I, li I like this little story. He, he, hid that, he hid that dagger from him so that, so that he wouldn't see it. I, I, I really like that story. He was a left-handed man. And this, this is true to the story because uh, normally when you... Uh, was, was presented to someone you were uh, right handed left handed people were often forced to become right handed in the ancient world okay so he had a dagger he wanted to meet with the king he says I have a secret message for you O king I like that he says, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. This is verse 20. So Ahu came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. And Ahu said, I have a message from God for you. 
It sounds like something out of a movie. So he arose from his seat. This reminds me of uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, The Godfather, Part Two, when uh, Michael Corleone was was in Italy and he went to assassinate this um, this don that was sitting on on the porch. He was an older man, and he walked up to him and whispered something in his ear, and then just kind of stabbed him real fast. Said, "This message is from Don Corleone," and then stabbed him like that, and you know, killed him. That, that, that's it, that, that, that's what I had in my mind when I. I saw this. God is the greatest story writer, isn't he? God, God is the greatest writer. So anyway, 21. Ehud reached with his right hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. But he didn't stop there. Even the hilt went in after the blade. That means the part that holds the knife. You know, they call it the hilt. But that means this knife went all the way into him. And the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the dagger out of his belly. He disemboweled him basically because his entrails came out. You know what the entrails are. I wanted to get too graphic with that. But he disemboweled him. Then Ahu went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Doesn't it sound like something out of a movie? Like he assassinates him, then he, 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 he escapes. Man, God is a great story writer. Oh, man. So, basically, he brought money, paying tribute, because they were under domination of the king of Moab. It was like bringing taxes to him, you know. So, he came as a messenger. He was making payment to him. Okay? And he told me he had a message for him. He did have a message for him. He told the truth. It was a message from God. So, what was the message? You're going to be dead. <laughs> so, man, he, he stabbed him. His entrails came out. And then he escaped. And so now his men come looking for him. When he had gone out, Eglin's servants came to look. And to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. Hmm. That is, I know I keep saying this, but doesn't it sound like something out of a movie? You know, they, you can imagine them coming up there looking for him. You know, hey, the king is upstairs. You know, let's go, let's go find him. And, and they get to the door, and the door is locked. Like, you know, what's going on? This is unusual. He is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed and still had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them. So they opened it. You can just see picture this and there was their master falling dead on the floor but Ahu had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sierra and it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them okay so Ehud led them. Then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after, the, after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, 
not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land of Israel had rest for, what, 80 years. So, so far they've had 120 years of rest, and they've had 26 years of bondage. So God gave them rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox gold, and he also delivered Israel. So God had delivered Israel three different times. Three different times. So they had all this freedom now, and then they had this third judge uh, to come in. Now, Shamgar was called what we call a minor judge, meaning that, you know, not much is written about him. Not that his work was minor, but it just wasn't much uh, written about him. So he delivered Israel also. So what can we learn in summary as we get ready to close out here? Even about God. Number one, God is merciful. God is, you know, people who don't know the Bible, don't read the Bible, who... Uh, claim to hate God you know they say oh the God of the Old Testament was was, was full of anger and, and, and murderous and, and, and like enjoyed killing people and killing nations first of all it's the same God of the Old Testament as the New Testament same God number one but number two when you read the Old Testament especially the narratives you will see the mercy and patience of God. God was merciful and patient to Israel. He forgave them. Gave them another chance. Exactly. The mercy and patience and long suffering. And God is like that with us. In our sin as believers. God is merciful to us. Now the thing is. We don't use God's mercy as a means to sin or his grace. Paul said that in Romans 6 and 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may be abound? God forbid. We don't take advantage of God's mercy. The Bible says his mercy are renewed every morning. That's uh, was it Lamentations, the third chapter. His mercies are renewed every morning. But we see the mercy of God in this passage, in this chapter. We also see the wrath of God. Because God is a jealous God, not jealous like a boyfriend, girlfriend type jealousy. No, it is a righteous, holy jealousy. Why? Because God alone is worthy of our worship. We're not to give our worship to another. He is God and God alone. God alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our adoration. Like I was talking about the young lady I was talking to today, she was raving about Beyonce. You got people that rave about Taylor Swift and, you know, like, like a worshipful thing. You know, it's like they go to the concert, like they describe like they're having an out-of-body experience. That's worship. That's, that's idolatry. Or they do that with their football teams. I was reading an article back on November 20th. I still have it saved here in my 
on my iPad that arenas are cathedrals. It talks about what sports reveals about worship. That's right. Now, huh? Yeah, that's true. You hear that? It's a religion. Yeah. What Grace is saying is that uh, for those who can't hear on uh, audio recording, is that a lot of movies uh, start out or just we say in our culture that sports is like religion, and for a lot of people, it is a religion. It's it's a it's a means of worship, um, and it's not that you can't be a fan of a team. You know, like. I'll, you know, watch, for Annotate, watching Iron Bowl, I was standing in front of my TV, standing up, looking at TV right there in front of me on that fourth and 31, uh, fourth and goal from the 31. I was standing there, watch. I, I, I stood up, and Fran was in the bathroom, peeping out the door. And when, uh, what's that guy, uh, caught the ball in his own, I screamed out, he caught it! I mean, I, I did. I was like, yes! You know, the dog got excited and everything. I mean, I was excited. It was an exciting play, but... Like I told somebody, my life doesn't change. My life is not improved if Alabama wins, and it's not unimproved if they if they lose. I said my I said my life is not going to change. You can enjoy, you can watch. There's nothing wrong with watching. The Bible doesn't forbid that, but it is not to turn into idolatrous worship. We can enjoy those things. God gives us all things. First Timothy six. God gives us all things richly to enjoy, not to worship. So back to this passage here, what we learn is that God alone is worthy of worship. He is the only one who desires or who deserves our worship. And when Israel didn't do that, God was angry with them and he punished them as a result. Number three, sin always, and I said this earlier, sin always brings misery. Sin always punishes. Sin always leads to misery and helplessness and hopelessness. We see that with Israel. When they sinned against God, guess what happened? They felt the punishment. They felt the wrath. There wasn't anything good like they thought it was going to be. Sin always brings misery. It's sin, is, sin is deceptive. Always remember, people, Satan's going to present the bait and hide the hook. Every time. He's very crafty in doing that. And since I got a couple of minutes, I'm going to bring up this, uh, this book from Thomas Brooks. I'm going to read that, uh, that passage from his book, Precious Truths Against Satan Devices, about uh, presenting the bait and hiding uh, the hook. So I'm going to type in for searching. I'm going to search here. And I'm going to type in the word bait. Because I know I can find it that way. Here we go. Present, here we go. So he says here. He says. Sin is never the less vile by being so painted. In other words, no matter how pretty sin is presented, it's, it's, it's still not any less vile. He says, the more sin is so painted, the more dangerous it is. 
We ought to look on sin with an eye, with their eye, with which within a few hours we shall see it. So think about that hook. He presents the bait and hides the hook. Let me find that part. So. Here we go. There we go. All right, listen to this right quick. Satan's first device is to draw the soul into sin. I'm sorry, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device he deceived our first parents. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened, knowing uh, you will be as God's, knowing good and evil. That's Genesis 3, 4, and 5. He says, Your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God's. Here is the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. Oh, but he hides the hook, the shame, the wrath, and the loss that will certainly follow. That's what Thomas Brooks wrote. So hold on one second. I'm going to finish up here. Then you can ask a question. Just don't forget it. So thinking about Israel in the book of Judges, they took the bait of worshiping and marrying with these pagans. But the hook was them being taken away from worship of God to worshiping those pagan gods. That's, that's the hook that you don't see. So as believers, as I said earlier, we must be careful with our associations, with our uh, partnerships that we have. Like I said, it's not that we, we live in a sinful world among sinful people. We have to work among sinful people. We have sinful people in our families, our unbelievers everywhere. We have to deal with them. But don't become partners with them. Don't form alliances with them. Because be sure to know that they'll end up drawing you away from Christ instead of you getting closer to Christ. They're going to pull you slowly. It's, it's a slow pull. Casting Crowns had a song called Slow Fade. It's a, it's a slow fade when you'll surely drift away. It's, it's slow. It's, it's like drifting at sea. You know, we throw something down to the water off the ship. When I was on the aircraft carrier, throw a cup out there being stupid to see, you know, it, it's slowly drifting out to sea. Just slowly, the next thing you know, you don't even see it. That's how it is when you drift away from Christ. It's a sl I've seen it happen so many times, so many people. It's heartbreaking. You see them, then you see them occasionally, then you don't see them at all. You ask somebody, hey, how's so-and-so doing? I, you know, they're not walking with Christ anymore. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. They just slowly drift away. May God keep our hearts. Let's pray, and then I get to your question. Lord, thank you for showing us in your word, your mercy, 
your faithfulness to your people despite their unfaithfulness to you. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ who is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. Lord, help us foster us towards more faithfulness, more commitment to obeying you, commitment to the ordinary means of grace, Bible study, fellowship, uh, prayer, scripture reading, observing baptisms and the, and the communion, those means that you give us to grow, Lord. Help us to, to fight for those things. Help us to fight for prayer. Help us to fight to pray, to keep our hearts warm for you, that our hearts may not grow cold, Lord, that we may not apostatize, that we may not be like Israel and start worshiping pagans. May we continue, Lord, with your help, our commitment to worshiping the one true God who is blessed forever. Thank you for our time and your word, Lord, until we meet on the Lord's Day. May your grace be with us all. Amen.